Thanks, Sage family. Just love the cat strolling through at the end there and disappearing stage left. Hey, why don't we pray? There's lots to be uh, praying about uh, at the moment, and then we'll get into our Bible passage for today. Loving God, we want to thank you that we can uh, we can still uh, have church like this, um, get your word out, uh, be able to pray for things, uh, hear about what people are, are doing in, in other spaces. And we're grateful for the technology that allows us to stay connected. Uh, I want church in many homes. Uh, we continue to pray, Lord, for our nation, uh, for the world, really, as it's under um, this pandemic. We pray for those that are dealing with this virus, uh, that are in contact with it in our medical, our first responders and, and those people for safety, for, for wisdom, for insight as they are in, in quite uh, hot spots with this virus. We think of our leaders uh, in this country, uh, our, our national and our, and our government uh, leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them insight into how to manage and how to strategize. Uh, for the for the medical experts and scientists that they're liaising with, um, that that you would uh, be giving guidance and wisdom. And we know that you, through history, have used both your people and, and those that don't know you to guide and control history. And so we're praying that you would work into that space. And we're praying into that space because we want to see lives protected. We want to see uh, the curve come down. We don't want to see people uh, suffering and dying from this virus. And we want life to return uh, back to normal. We pray also that in this time that you would use this time to make people aware of their own limitations that we don't run the world, that we aren't in control, but we can know a God who is, and that can bring peace into our lives. Uh, we think of Jam 2 in hospital this morning, and, and we, we hope that that leg, whatever's going on there, isn't too bad, and that she'll be able to get back home with the family soon. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning here in Luke in this passage, we pray that your spirit would, would give us wisdom and insight, that we would learn something of Jesus here that, that helps to secure our faith in him and to help us to grow in knowledge of him uh, and know that we have a saviour who just kind of knows every aspect of our lives, uh, that, that, that he sympathizes with us and, and, and doesn't just kind of sit remote. So we thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my, uh, I'm going to start with this little observation that I make. Um, been on social, everyone's on social media a lot lately, and probably too much. But one of the observations I, I make about Facebook is how how perfectly at times we present our kids. You know, there'll be a photo. Here's here's little Johnny uh, getting an award for reading, um, and here's little Janie getting an award for uh, kindness. Oh, and here's Johnny. Uh, uh, you know, he's just cured COVID nineteen or something like that. Or here's little Janie. She's just brokered a peace deal uh, between China and India. Uh, Facebook, it's full of our kids' achievements, uh, moment after moment after moment, uh, digitally imprinted there for, for the rest of time and history for everyone, even the people we don't want seeing it, seeing it, and there it is. And then occasionally I, I notice that when we feel like we aren't getting enough sympathy for how hard parenting is, probably due to the fact that we've been presenting this idyllic picture of our of our family we roll out the odd image of chaos you know here's little johnny eating the blue loo or here's little janie shaving the cat uh whatever it is we get to tell the story of our kids our children 
uh, what they're like, what they what they bring to the table, how they challenge us uh, through social media, through things like Facebook. You know, partly to pump up our own tires in an attempt to convince the world that we're actually doing an okay job at parenting, and, and partly to explain to the world that yeah, well, we aren't perfect, and occasionally we do lose our minds. But look at what little Janie did to the cat. You know that that kind of explains it. But I think mainly, I suppose, I imagine, uh, it's because we love our kids and we're proud of our kids and we put it on there. And we're reminded at times of our need for grace as we, as we parent our kids. Well, Luke, you know, Luke didn't have uh, Facebook. He didn't have social media uh, to spam everybody's lives with 6,000 uh, moments and insights into Jesus' childhood development kind of wonder how Luke ever communicated anything without the platforms of social media, but he seems to have done a good job. So when it came uh, to giving us a window, a post, if you like, into the childhood of Jesus, Luke can't afford to, to waste his ink. So Luke paints this brief but very vivid portrait of the boy Jesus, and he gives a clear snapshot, a clear window into Jesus' own self-understanding of, of who he is. You know, up until this point, we've heard from a heap of other people, a bunch of other people who have been aided by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And now in this little window, we hear from Jesus himself. And these and the first words, these are the first words recorded that Jesus spoke. And though they are very few, uh, they are very profound. It's quite an incredible little passage. New Testament scholar A.T. Robinson observes this. A glimpse of a boy with a hunger, a knowledge, and a yearning for future service. This boy who already had the consciousness of a peculiar relationship to God the Father, and yet who went back to Nazareth in obedience to Joseph and Mary to toil at the carpenter's bench uh, for the next 18 years. Luke Luke has captured uh, the boyhood here of Jesus and captured Jesus' own self-understanding in one brief paragraph a boy who understands his unique relationship with god the father and yet a boy who still uh lives in joyful relationship in willing voluntary submission to his own mum and dad you know presumably there were uh, many things that luke could have told us uh, about the childhood of jesus you know, John tells us at the end of his gospel that Jesus did so many things that the world itself is not a big enough place to contain them all. But Luke gives us just the necessary historic facts uh, that we need to know all we need to know about Jesus. What actually happened? And of all the things that he could have posted about Jesus' childhood, he selects this one event after the Passover that takes place in the temple. Therefore, this event must have special meaning Luke. It must have great significance. It must teach us something that we need to know about Jesus so that our faith in him is not misplaced, so that our, our trust in him as our savior is well grounded. You know, that's what Christianity is. It's not a faith about wishful thinking. It's not a faith about some aspirational ideas. It's a faith that is grounded in facts, facts that transform the heart, facts that fuel the feeling, that give birth to worship. So we are compelled to ask questions like, what does this story actually tell us about Jesus? 
You know, so often we're like, what's it telling us about us? But what is it telling us about Jesus? What can we learn about the mysterious union of his deity and his humanity? What can we discover about his, his mission, his saving mission on earth and his own understanding of what that looks like? Well, firstly, we see Luke very cleverly, very succinctly describes for us uh, the full humanity of Jesus. Luke summarizes the childhood of Jesus by compressing uh, his first 12 years into one single verse in Luke 2.40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in a similar verse, at the end of our passage, it kind of operate like bookends to this passage. Um, Luke describes the life of Jesus from his adolescence to his adult um, life in Luke 2.52, 2:52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and the favor of, in and in favor with God and man. And Philip Ryken, in his commentary, he points out that these verses testify to the physical, intellectual, spiritual, uh, and relational development of the Son of God. Jesus, like every single person to walk the earth, has to develop in these ways. He gets no special treatment when it comes to the human experience of growth and development. He grew in stature. He grew physically. He became strong. Jesus went through all the ordinary stages of physical development. He had to crawl like a baby before he could walk like a man. He wasn't, uh, you know, sneaking little things in, operating like the characters out of, out of Toy Story, you know. When no one's around, he just goes, well, I don't need to do this, and just gets up and walks over to the fridge and grabs a snack and something to eat and then goes back to all sort of helpless and little child. When mum walks back in the room, Jesus had developed strength and coordination over time to do something as common as walking. As a child and as an adult, Jesus, uh, he suffered and he enjoyed all the limitations of physical existence. He grew tired. He got hungry. You know, he had to take a nap and he had to eat uh, to keep healthy, to keep fit. The Son of God knew what it was to experience a physical body. Jesus came to save us in a physical body. And in doing so, he took on all the difficulties and all the possibilities of human existence. This is what Luke is teaching us about Jesus, that it is a real physical person. He is a real physical person. As a real physical person that would eventually go and hang on a cross for our sin. And it was flesh like ours that felt pain and suffered and and, and experienced death. It is not some kind of divine substitute. It is not some kind of impersonal avatar sent to die for our sins. Jesus had to be like you and I in every sense of the word. Jesus' full humanity is seen also in the fact that he grew in and increased in wisdom. Jesus had to grow intellectually. Not only did Jesus have a human body uh, with all of its limitations, Jesus had a human mind with all of its limitations. When God, the eternal word, took on flesh, he, he submitted his omniscience, his all-knowingness uh, to the human process of learning all things. Jesus' humanity was a full humanity. It included reason. It included will. It included emotions. Like his body, the mind of Christ had to develop as well. Luke is telling us that the intellectual, the moral, the spiritual growth of Jesus as a child was just as real as his physical growth. 
he observed, he learned, he remembered, and he applied with all the same laws of perception, memory, and logic that you and I use in our own development. Here is a stunning and a scandalous reality of God becoming like us. An all-knowing, all-powerful being subjected himself to the very laws that he created uh, for us to live under. He submitted himself uh, to all these very laws. As a boy, Jesus had to learn stuff he literally didn't know. He had to learn how to walk. He also had to learn how to answer questions like, what's two plus two? Uh, He possibly even had to learn algebra, Lockie. Yes, even Jesus had to learn algebra, mate. But then there are things that he simply wouldn't have known in his time on earth. Jesus would never have known in his time on earth what the percentage of hydrogen is in Jupiter's atmosphere. He may have never known the circumference of the earth, the population of Australia in 2020. He, He wouldn't have known if Carlton are going to go on and win the 2020 premiership. These are things that his divine nature and existence would have always known, but with respect to his human nature, they were things, uh, many of the things that he would never actually ever know in his time on earth. And as I said, here we stand on the edge of a great mystery of the incarnation. The Son of God submitted himself to the full limitations of the human condition. Apart from special revelation from the Father by the Spirit, Jesus did not know anything that was outside the capacity of the human mind to know at that age, at that point of development. We have to acknowledge that while Jesus was, uh, as a man, was not omniscient, that by virtue of his, his deity and his relationship with the Father, Jesus had access to information via special revelation. Uh, that allowed him to know certain things that he couldn't have ordinarily known. Sometimes Jesus knew uh, what people were thinking. That's not something an ordinary person can do. There are things that Jesus knew because God, by the Holy Spirit, revealed them to him. The the Father revealed as much as the Son needed to know. Now, it wasn't crazy stuff all the time. It wasn't like he was down the TAB, you know, betting on the next horse race. God revealed specific stuff to him, stuff that he would need to know uh, to, to do his ministry. And that's why Jesus says things like, Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son of, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what the Father, what he sees the Father doing. He says, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I say and how I say it. There's a difference between infinite knowledge and supernatural knowledge. Jesus learned the will of God for his life uh, through both general uh, revelation, through through learning in general, and through special revelation, through God uh, talking to him and letting him know stuff. He learned like you and I... um, about things and beyond what you and I would normally learn uh, Jesus had to depend on God the Father uh, working through the Spirit to reveal those things to him that he wasn't just privy to just accessing them whenever he felt like it these were the rules of engagement for his mission to the world these were the rules that that the eternal world word submitted himself to when he came into the world there is one critical difference though Jesus was without sin. This is the one reality of the human condition that Jesus never knew, that Jesus never experienced. 
It really is staggering, and it kind of hurts our minds, but we have to grasp it. We, in order to appreciate and respond with gratitude and have our own hearts encouraged by the realization that our God chose to experience the suffering of human life, chose to encounter all the limitations and all the weaknesses of our experience so that we could know that we have a Savior who sympathizes with us. He did not save us from a distance. He did not sit back and say, oh, I'm too holy. Uh, that's too beneath me to get involved in that kind of thing. You think I wanted to have my own nappy changed? No. He did it all too. He came and he entered into it and he did it all under uh, the limitations of, of, of humanity. And never once in that sinned. Never once did he sin by overreaching the rules of engagement. Never once did he sin uh, by living outside of the law, living outside of God's design for, for people. And, and we learn and we see that Jesus qualifies across all lines to be our sin bearer. That's what uh, Luke is teaching us here. And in between these two bookend verses uh, that tell us about the humanity of Jesus, there's this real-life event that teaches us something about Jesus' own awareness of his unique relationship with God and his messianic role in the world. Luke probably heard this story from Mary, uh, who treasured up these things uh, in her heart. We read that in Luke 2.52. It's kind of how Luke conveys that he's talking to Mary about all the things that he, she stored up in her heart about, about Jesus. Of all the stories that, that Mary would have treasured up and probably spoke to Luke about, this is the one that Luke writes up because this is the moment that most clearly... Uh, reveals Jesus' identity, reveals the destiny that God has for him. And Luke uses it at this moment to prepare us for what's going to come in the rest of this gospel. It's one of those well-worn stories because we can all relate to losing a child. We've all misplaced a child or two uh, throughout the journey. I remember, and Lockie constantly reminds us of this, we were driving home from church one morning and the phone rang, which you know, Mary and Joseph didn't have uh, the convenience of that kind of thing in first century Palestine. But uh, the phone rings and it was their good uh, friends, the Malpasses, just letting us know that they have Lockie with them and they take care of him and feed him and that we could pick him up at our, you know, whenever we felt like uh, bringing him back into our family. Well, we did a quick head check around the car, a quick count, and what do you know? No, no Lockie in the car. There were a few bemused looks in the car about how this could happen. Like, Lock's a quiet kid, but you reckon you'd notice he wasn't there. So it happens. But it's even more plausible and not nearly as irresponsible in a first century Palestinian setting. You know, it was commonplace for large groups uh, as they travel between the festivals and that, uh, for them to travel in into uh, separate parties. The women would often travel out in front, you know, just clearing landmines and making sure there's no bandits on the road and stuff like that. And the boys, the men would be at the back, which sounds a bit backwards to me, but that's how they did it. At two different groups. And it wasn't uncommon for the children to float between these two groups. So you can see how Mary might have thought that Jesus was with his dad, and you can see how Joseph might have thought that Jesus was with his mum. In reality, Jesus never left the temple. 
He had stayed on after the Passover feast. And Luke points out once again that Mary and Joseph are very diligent, very very committed uh, to the upbringing of Jesus in, in their faith and in their customs and in their traditions. And this year is a special year because Jesus is 12 and it's the year in which he would undergo uh, intense mentoring by his dad. Intense uh teaching about how to be a carpenter, how to take on the family business. It's a year in which Jesus would have intense discipling about their faith, uh, you know, as his dad prepared him for uh, his mitzvah, which would be when he turned 13, when Jesus would enter into full economic and social and religious responsibilities. He would become a, a, a member of the synagogue. He becomes a, a son of the law, the mitzvah. So this is the year. So this year as Joseph and Jesus walked around Jerusalem up for the feast for the Passover, Joseph would have, would have taken extra care, extra time, extra attention to be pointing out the symbolism and the meaning behind all that was taking place, uh, here. Uh, this is who we are as the people of God. This is our story. Uh, this is what God has done for us. This is what those grapevines mean up there on the temple. Here's the significance of the Passover meal. Here's why the lamb is sacrificed. It would have been quite a time. And you can imagine uh, Joseph as he's heading home with the lads just talking up how bright his boy is and how he's going to rip that mitzvah test to shreds, only to find out at the end of the day that Jesus has gone rogue, that he's not there. He's no longer with them. Well, this is the space that every parent finds themselves in occasionally after talking our kids up, after posting those wonderful photos on Facebook. Uh, they go and do something embarrassing. And not only that, Mary and Joseph had the added issue of just, you know, they lost the Son of God. So you can imagine uh, the marriage-testing conversations uh, that transpired over the next two days as they searched for him going from house to house, from family member to family member, friends and relatives. And eventually they find Jesus, maybe because they heard some of the commotion going on at the temple. They find Jesus. Far from feeling lost, far from being left behind, Jesus is calm and he's at peace. He's, he's, he's sitting amongst the teachers at the temple. In reality, he is right where he's meant to be. He stayed in the place that most satisfied his soul. He was in his father's house. He was learning as much as he could about the scriptures, about God's promise about salvation, drinking in more of what Joseph had, had, had spoken to him about. He was irresistibly drawn to stay in his father's presence, lingering in a place where his heart could experience in some measure the joy that he had once known eternally. Just as our souls long for home, just as our souls long for what we've lost in being disconnected from God, Jesus longs, longs to be back with the Father. The level and the knowledge uh, and engagement that Jesus displayed amazed all who heard him. And for a few proud moments mixed with deep relief, his parents were astonished at what they heard as well. But the relief and the pride quickly gives way to a scolding. And as a kid, you kind of know, uh, you kind of know when it's serious. You kind of know when you've pushed it a little too far. When mum starts with your father and I, that's when you know you've gone on a bridge too far. That's when you know you're going to be grounded for the next six years. But strangely, Jesus' response is not one of an apology for distressing his parents. 
but rather his tone is of blunt surprise. The first recorded words of Jesus are ones through which he actually rebukes his mum and dad. Essentially, Jesus says, you of all people should have known where I would be, where I must be, where I had to be. Why this three-day search? This is the first place you should have looked. You should have known, Dad, of all people, that I must be in my father's house. Now, I can only begin to imagine how those words rested on Joseph. And as scandalous as it would have been for a 12-year-old boy to put his mum and dad straight, even more scandalous is his reasoning. What Jesus the boy said was, was monumental and it revealed, in what it revealed about his true identity as the Son of God. And it's revolutionary uh, in its implications for our own relationship with God as Father. You know, we're used to hearing God described in these terms, that God's like a good and a loving Father. Because that's what Christianity has brought to the table. That's what Christianity has changed. No other religion sees God this way. And up until this moment, no Jew would have ever dared refer to God in such intimate terms. God is totally transcendent, totally other, unapproachable holiness. Yes, he's referred to as Father in, in the Old Testament in, in relation to that, you know, he's like the source of the nation. But never do you see God used in personal terms, personal address, way too intimate, way too personal, way too casual. So here is Jesus talking about God as his father, claiming a type of relationship with God literally unheard of in all of human history, let alone Jewish faith. God as my father personal address, intimate relationship. That's why Mary and Joseph don't understand the saying that Jesus used. It's why Mary had to treasure these things up until they made sense later on. There's a lot going on in this moment, and one of those things is that, is that Jesus, even in his humanity, even as a 12-year-old boy, understands his uniqueness, has come to know that he has a special role to play in human history that falls in line with all that Scripture hoped for, with all that Scripture points to. And no doubt this, this element of growing, this element of growing in wisdom and favor with God took place through the, the special revelation, if you like, uh, the favor of God as God his Father spoke to him. Now maybe, and this is pure speculation, uh, other, other commentators speculate along these lines, but this is, you won't find this in Scripture, so I'm speculating here. But I don't know how else to explain uh, this moment, and, and, and this speculation kind of fits in with all that we see about Jesus. Maybe as Joseph uh, discipled Jesus, if you like, from a, from a human-to-God point of view, as to what the Passover means, as, as what the symbolism and the significance of all their rituals and rules, uh, all their faith meant, Maybe at the same time as they were walking around Jerusalem that year, God, Jesus' heavenly Father, was revealing things from an eternal perspective, from the perspective of heaven back down to earth, that point of view. Hey, the, all of this, all of this that you see, this is why you have come into the world. 
All of this points to you. Humanity doesn't need another set of rules. It doesn't need another prescription of religious practices. It it doesn't need another moral code. It needs a saviour. It needs someone to come and replace all of this in real, genuine, personal terms that people themselves can call me Father. No wonder Jesus wants to stay in the temple. No wonder he didn't leave. These are not vague strings of identity. Even as a boy, Jesus knew precisely who he was. He had come uh, a complete confidence that he was the Son of God. And that as the Son of God, he must be in his Father's house. That's his priority. He must be doing his Father's will. That's his priority. And already at a young age, Jesus is speaking about God in the same way that he will speak about God in his ministry years. But what of this rebuke to his parents? What about the fifth commandment? Has Jesus been disobedient? Has has Jesus been dishonoring? No, and that's the point Jesus is making. He's not trying to be smart. He's just frankly amazed that his parents didn't know where to find him. He wasn't disobeying any instruction on on where to be because he was prepared precisely where he should be. Mary and Joseph have every right uh, to expect Jesus to be where he should be. They just made the wrong assumption about where that was. When Jesus said, I must be here, that word must carries this, 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 this idea of necessity. It's a divinely appointed inevitability. This is where I have to be. I'm moving to the plan of salvation that my Father in heaven lays out for me, that my Father in heaven reveals to me. Jesus' whole nature yearns to serve and obey his heavenly Father. Mary and Joseph are his earthly parents, but his relationship with his Father in heaven supersedes theirs. So of course they should expect to find him in his heavenly Father's house. Jesus is basically saying, my relationship with God, the nature of it, relativizes my relationship with you. This is not dishonoring. This is just the reprioritizing of relationships. Jesus clearly, even now, understands that it will be God the Father who will control his destiny. Uh, God the Father who who will inform him of his life and its practice. And so Jesus is now pressing into that space in all the ways that his human limitations allow him to press into that space. The Word, the Word, the Scriptures... Prayer, being in church, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's not extraordinary. What's extraordinary is when you and I think that we can get by by doing less. That is extraordinary. Well, Luke finishes this extraordinary moment by telling us that after Jesus' self-disclosure to be the Son of God, He then went and spent the next 18 years in glad and joyful submission to his parents. Jesus is literally the only kid ever who can say to his parents, I I genuinely can do as I please. I'm older than you. In fact, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. I heard that a few times as a kid. And the picture we have here of Jesus is one of joyful, voluntary submission back to his parents. Joyful, voluntary submission to God and voluntary submission to his parents under the law, under the design of God. 
you know, if you ever wonder, uh, does Jesus know what it's like to be a kid under submission? You children out there, here it is. But you know something? Sometimes the Bible's just telling us facts. And here it's just telling us facts about who Jesus is. And we just add them to our understanding of who he is. But listen, if you've ever wondered, does God really know what it's like to live this life? Here's your answer. Or here's part of the picture to that answer. The one who told the stars where to shine. The one who told the you know proud waves where to stop. The one who tells the rain where to fall. The lightning where to go wherever it goes. In order to qualify to bring you and I into a saving relationship with God, one where we would get to call God our Father, submitted himself in every dimension to the human experience. And he grew in stature in that. And he grew in wisdom in that. And he honored his mom and dad in that. And he yearned to serve his Father perfectly in all of that. Jesus' whole life is a body of evidence that he came to deliver us from sin, which keeps us from God, which stops us growing in stature and in wisdom as God designed. You know, Knowing Jesus as a Savior is more than just a ticket to heaven. It's a means through which uh, we can know the favor of God in this life, to grow in stature, to grow in wisdom, to grow as God had intended us to grow. Jesus wasn't a passenger in his life, and neither should we be. If he is our Lord and Savior, we should follow his pattern of life. Luke has given us enough to see that Jesus can journey with us through these things, through all the stages of life. Um, When we find it hard to submit to God's plan, or when we find it hard to submit to relational authority, when you find it hard not to to stay in this ring of steel that we have that Daniel Andrews has put in place, understand that Jesus has been there, and that the same tools that he had are ours, of of Scripture, of prayer, of church, and even though it's it's, it's different now, it's all online, we, we still have this sense of unity in Christ, and we have the presence of God, our Father, with us through the work of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that Luke brings to us this morning that we can take on board. I pray that they're an encouragement to you today. Let's pray. Hey, Lord, we thank you for this picture of Jesus uh, that we have, uh, that we can see that even through his Teen, kids, years, through his adolescence up to his adult, he he lived this perfect life. So so when we go, when we ask the question, well, is Jesus qualified to forgive my sins for the time that I punched my brother in the face when I was four, or when I when I when I stole money out of mum and dad's purse when I was ten? Yes, he is. He perfectly went through that that journey that we went through imperfectly, and he covers us. So we give you thanks that we get that window, that we see that level of evidence uh, in your word to us. And we thank you for that today. And we give you thanks uh, for all that we've been able to do this morning from hearing from Phil to to singing the odd song. Uh, And we pray that you would nurture our souls and warm our hearts with affection for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.